It is often said that confession is good for the soul and hard on the reputation. I tried to get out of this today. Not really, but uh, those of you who know that my family and I are in the middle of moving from one house to another and everything's packed up and or not everything, but will soon be, and um, it's just kind of wild, and, and uh, I texted the pastor earlier in the week, and I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this, and he said, well, let me know what you, what you decide, and I got up the next morning, and I just felt like the Lord said to me, I'm on your side, so you can do this, you know, and it's not me, it's him, it's, I, I didn't write a sermon this week, it's something that I'm regurgitating from when I was a lay pastor at West Frankfurt. But the um, subject I'm interested in exploring this morning is the subject of worship. Worship. Our scripture reading comes from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. John 4, 23. And 24. When you're there, say amen. amen. Jesus speaking, and he says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, and in truth. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your anointing this morning upon your humble servant, and I stand here in need of you, and we need you. We pray that you will minister to us while we read your words and speak of things that you impress us to speak of today. Guide and direct in our service now and continue as you have been so far. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship can be defined as to honor or revere something or someone as a divine being or a supernatural power. It can also be defined as to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. I want to talk about that word devotion here in just a little bit. When I wrote this sermon, I had been reading from the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we find this story where it is near the end of King Solomon's reign. And God had made it known that he intended to divide the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms. But Judah would serve as one kingdom and later Benjamin would join. And the other ten tribes would be the kingdom known as Israel. And God had picked a mighty man of valor, not a son of Solomon, to be king over the newly formed ten kingdom land of Israel. His name was Jeroboam. 
And eventually, after Solomon had died, his son Rehoboam became king of the newly formed land of Judah. But Rehoboam made it known right away that he was going to be hard on the people in the way of taxes and burdens. And so the people rebelled against him. And so they moved to make Jeroboam king over the ten tribes, and their capital would be in Shechem. But Rehoboam remained king over Judah, and his capital was in Jerusalem. So I want to pick it up in that chapter, 1 Kings chapter 12, and we're going to begin at verse 25. Now, today's message, I'm going to be covering a lot of sequential reading of scriptures because I think it's important to get the backdrop of what is going on. So we're going to begin at 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse uh, chapter 12 and verse 25. And the Bible reads as thus. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore, the king asked advice. Is it good to ask advice? Sure. I'm not sure. Exactly. Depending on who you ask. I guess he didn't ask the right people because it continues and says he made two calves of gold and said to the people. Now, wait a minute. Is this is this guy an idol worshiper? No. Right. He's king of Israel. He made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a, a what? A sin for the people, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. <clears throat> He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the places, high places, which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar, which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month, which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and suffered, offered sacrifices on the altar and burnt incense. It makes you want to ask what were, if you could talk to him, what were you thinking? Right. What were you thinking? Well, he feared that he would lose the loyalty of the people if they had to travel all the way back to Jerusalem for worship to make sacrifice. So if you notice that we read the story 
And over and over again, it said, which he made, which he made, which he made. Just because we devise our own form of worship, it doesn't mean that God has to or will accept it. So he made his own temple. He anointed his own priests and he instituted his own day of worship. In doing so, he sunk the nation of Israel, or what was left of it, into national apostasy. Now, what's apostasy? Apostasy is an act of refusing to continue to follow, obey, or recognize a religious faith. This was the man that God originally handpicked to be king after Solomon's death. And we, as we read this narrative, we start off thinking that Rehoboam was so bad because of how he treated the people. But look what Jeroboam did. And as we continue on in the book, we see Jeroboam's defiance grew where God had to send a prophet to correct him. And did he welcome the prophet's words? No, he tried to have him arrested. And God answered this action by destroying Jeroboam's altar. That is in the next chapter. Golden calves. Does that remind you of anything? Rings a bell, doesn't it? How long did it take the children of Israel to build their golden calf and worship it instead of God while they were waiting for Moses. A mere 40 days. How soon we forget. Why would God's people think that it would be okay to bow down and worship golden calves? Well, what was Jeroboam's motive? He wanted to control he wanted to keep the people close to him. He was all about the power and the glory. Why is it that we as humans constantly fall into the pit of idolatry? He said, not me. I don't have any idols. I don't have any statues or little figurines in my home that I pray to or bow down to. Oh, don't be so sure. Why is it that we fall into the pit of creating something and then worshiping it? As if this creation that we made was all that, as they say. Why is it that things often take the place of God in our lives? I want you to go with me to the book of Isaiah 44. This story here if you want to call it a story, is so mind-boggling to me. And it's, it's a long reading. And I just beg for your indulgence as we read this because this speaks specifically to what we are talking about today. Isaiah chapter 44 and beginning at verse 9. Now in the Bible that I'm using, which is a New King James Bible, there's a little heading over verse 9 that says, idolatry is foolishness. We're going to read something that is just mind-boggling. Beginning at verse 9. 
Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, lest they shall fear, lest they shall be ashamed together. Here's where it gets interesting. The blacksmith with his tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works in it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest and he plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and he falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Are you laughing yet? Maybe just a little bit? It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Verse 18, For they do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding, to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. Shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? We read that today and we say, how foolish, how stupid does that, can that be? Now, those of you who have ever cut down a tree with a chainsaw, have you ever cut down a tree with a chainsaw? Maybe many of us have. Would it occur to you (laughs) to cut that tree in half and with half of that tree go and make you a nice campfire and, and cook your food, and with the other half, do some carving on it and set it before you and bow down and worship. If you're like me, you're saying, well, I would, that would never even occur to me. But today, we have technological marvels. We, as human beings, are very creative. You ever see, watch the process of how an automobile is made in a factory? 
or a fancy Swiss watch or some other item that we as humans have created and made and they're wonderful things. But how does God create? How does God make? Someone once said, man invented a refrigerator and said it was amazing. God created a rabbit and said it was good. God, I mean, the man invented an automobile and said, fantastic. God did a tree, said it was good. The wheels fell off the car and the refrigerator broke down. The tree's still standing and the rabbit's still running. Our creativity is really isn't all that in the eyes of God. But to us, we're amazing and we create these technological marvels. And yes, sadly, sometimes they become items of worship for us. What things do people worship today? Money? Power? Television? Radio? Music? Internet? Computer? Tablet? Your house? Your car? The list goes on and on. Things that become more important to us than God himself. And we, what we have to ask our questions is, we have to ask the question, do these things serve us? Or are we serving these things? Go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Let's see what Jesus had to say about this subject. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. How many of you ever had something, some technological device, or some item that you have that quit working or broke down or just completely went non-functional. We've all had that. Even with our home, next thing you know, you have termites come in and they're eating the place up. You have mice make their way in and polluting the place. Everything that we have in this world is temporary and not worthy of worship. Yet sometimes we do that. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's the name of our sermon today? Anybody know? Where do you worship? It's a question of personal reflection. Where do you worship? Yeah, maybe we come into this house to worship, but there are other places we worship. We worship sitting at the computer. We worship watching the, sitting at the television. We worship in all forms and fashions instead of worshiping the only one that is really due 
and deserving of our worship. Jesus is asking, are you putting your time and your money and your effort into things that will not last? What kind of sense does that make? Everything breaks down and collapses and goes away eventually. Or are we putting our money and our effort and our time into things that have an everlasting results? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will want most to be. And where you will end up being is where your treasure is. Is your treasure in this book? Or we talked a little bit about this in our in my uh, youth Sabbath school class this morning. And for some reason, I just thought of romance novels. You guys know, you know what romance novels are? And the Lord just painted this picture for me. Do we get more joy and satisfaction out of this or some story, some fantasy story or anything? Again, I'm not singling out one thing, anything that keeps us from serving God fully. So let's ask ourselves, what does true worship look like? Let's go to the book of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Also in our Sabbath school, in my Sabbath school class this morning, I asked the students, what are one thing you're looking forward to about heaven? And one of them answered, looking forward to some instant replay of things that maybe we would like to see that happened on planet Earth at different times. I would like to see the instant replay of this chapter. Exodus chapter 19. Now, I hope you'll bear with me. Or we're going to go through the whole chapter because I think it's important. And I want us to see. We're answering the question, what does true worship look like? Exodus 19, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be to me a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid them before laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded. Then all the people answered together <clears throat> and said, somebody tell me what they said. We will do. Have you ever said that? Oh, God's told me to do this and I'm going to do it. <clears throat> I'm going to just, I'm going to grit with all of my might and I'm going to do what he says to do. Yeah, Right. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. 
Don't let that sentence get by you. That the people may hear when I speak to you. How would you like to hear the voice of God, the literal voice of God rumbling from a mountaintop? That would be an experience that I would venture to say none of us would ever forget. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Now, here's where we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked, uh, quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon the Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Almost done. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, then come up, you and Aaron. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And even though I didn't give it to the multimedia group, the next verse of the following chapter, one verse says, And God spoke all these words, saying, To me, this is what true worship looks like. What do we see there? First of all, they separated themselves from the general population, right? They came together. They, in other words, they had been delivered out of Egypt. They came together. Today we would call that a, a, a congregational gathering or a um, convocation. Thank you very much. I was trying to think of that word and I couldn't think of it. Not that you can't worship in your home. But there comes a time when corporate worship coming together is a good thing. And we have to keep in mind why they were gathered together and who were they gathering together to worship. Deliverance had just taken place from Egypt, right? 
I would think that our response should be when we are delivered from something, when we are spiritually, when we, when we experience spiritual deliverance from some bondage, from some sin, our hearts should open up in worship. And the people came with a humble heart. They were willing to be taught, right? And willing to do all that God had commanded, at least for a little while. It was the intention. Don't miss this. It was the intention of God for the people to actually hear his voice. Do you know that when you come into this house of worship, that God is speaking? Are you listening? That's the question. And the people had to take a time of preparation. That's what Friday's for, isn't it? Amen. Preparation day. To, to make sure their homes were clean and prepare their hearts, prepare their home to consecrate themselves, wash their clothes. What does that even mean? I think God wants us to look our best when we, when we come to him. There was, there was an air of solemnity. That, so much so that they couldn't even come within certain boundaries for fear of being put to death. It wasn't that God was a dictator. It's that it was for their protection. Because God was there. He told the men, don't come near your wives. Don't come with ritual uncleanness. We should be clean on the inside and the outside when we come into the presence of God. And the whole scene presents a picture of a very solemn occasion. There was no shouting and dancing. There was no smoke and fancy lights. It says the people stood in silence. They were wearing the best that they had. Their attention was on the one speaking. Sometimes that's a trouble in our work, in our, in our church services today. I'm not calling anybody out, you understand. I'm just saying, sometimes our attention is everywhere else about, except for the person who is speaking, whether it's God or whether it's a pastor or whoever. They were wearing the best they had. Their hearts and their minds were right before God. There was no whispering or clamoring about. And God came down and met with them in the form of a fiery storm which enveloped the entire mountain. And they trembled in fear. Now, I'm not saying that when we come into the house of God that we should tremble in fear. But it is a solemn occasion to meet with God in his house of worship. Remember our scripture passage which said, true worshipers of God. Let's, leave, let's go to that again because I want to pick it apart. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, just two verses there. 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers? You mean there's false worshipers? 
Are there people who say they are worshiping God when they're really not? Again, I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not calling out any denomination or any church belief, but I'm just saying if there is something true, then there must be something false. True worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We know about truth, don't we? We know about all kinds of biblical doctrines that are true. And we know that they're true because the Bible says that they're true. Yet I got to tell you that I've been in Seventh-day Adventist churches and the people are not friendly. And there's very little smiles going on. And there's very little activity in the church. And everybody looks like they would really rather be just laying down taking a nap. Because they're actually sitting up taking a nap. I've been in churches like that. Perhaps some of you have been as well. It's wonderful to worship God in truth, but we need to worship God in spirit. I appreciate Brother CJ presenting that song this morning that had a little bit of tempo to it. It blessed my heart and it wasn't slow and humdrum. It had a little bit of tempo to it and I found myself tapping my shoe, but in a worshipful fashion, I love the words. Praise God that true followers of Jesus will worship in spirit and in truth, not just truth. And not just spirit either. So does God care about how we worship him? Or is it just the fact that we're worshiping God because we say we're worshiping God? He does care how we worship him. And that story in Exodus 19 that we just covered proves it. But you know, worship is very different today. I remember growing up in the Bible Belt of America <clears throat> that towns had Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Pentecostal churches and Catholic churches and even Seventh-day Adventist churches. Now what separated these churches from each other was their doctrines and their teachings. But today, if you drive around you'll see one that says the vine or you'll see one that says the rock or the journey. I saw one that said the church of the eternal God. Now I haven't visited these churches, but I would venture a guess that the names on the outsides of the churches are the only thing that's really different. And inside they're most likely all the same. But today, and I'm glad, don't, I'm glad we don't see this in this church. But today, it seems like there are gimmicks to get people to come into the church. We'll serve coffee and donuts before church. And there'll be songs that repeat the same line over and over and over and over and over and over. And you wear what you want and you eat what you want. It's about making churches comfortable and safe spaces. It's more of a social gathering than it is worship. And they have the subwoofers that are really booming. And a host of instruments and singers. And there's smoke, pink smoke. I don't know how they get it pink. 
Maybe it's pink lights shining on smoke or something. And the people stand and they sway back and forth. You know what I'm talking about. While they seem to sing words that hypnotize you. If you're interested in reading about that, go to the book Selected Messages, book 2, page 36. Interesting reading there. How many churches today have lost sight of what true worship of a holy God actually is? Is God holy? Ultimately, right? Ultimately. Years ago, I used to go to a lot of um, southern gospel singing concerts. And, um, um, and I'm not pointing anyone to saying they're wrong for this. But I remember oftentimes you would, people would say, give the Lord a hand clap, a hand clap of praise. And everybody would clap and clap and clap. I said, okay. I'm not saying that God doesn't deserve clapping. But I think that if, if I were standing in a long line and maybe when we're in heaven, people are lined up and the Lord Jesus is walking down in the middle of them. I'm not sure. I don't think I would be clapping. I think I would be on my face. Because he is holy and righteous. And I am not. I will be not holy, but I will be righteous one day. Glorified body. Mind rewired. Retrained to only think good things. No, no tempter. Oh, I look forward to that. I hope you do too. But is it possible that Christian churches have lost sight of what it is to worship a holy God? Go with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and beginning of verse 9. The apostle says, but you, how many yous are here today? There's a few. Those of you who aren't you, what are you? <laughs> We're all yous, right? But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Boy, if that didn't give you all warm and fuzzies on the inside, it should. To think that we are his chosen people, his royal generation. That you may, oh, okay. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's a thought in and of itself. This is what you are. Because of what you are comes the next part. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Some of you know what I'm really talking about. Some of us have grown up in the church. You know, my last name is Shelton. It's kind of a well-known name in these parts. I've been going to the Adventist church my whole life. I think my dad went to the Adventist church his whole life. And his mother, my grandma Goldie, came in sometime when the kids were very small. 
But some of you have come from real darkness. And you know about this verse more than I do, honestly. Who have called you out of darkness. Aren't you glad you heard that voice and called you out of darkness? Praise God and hallelujah, brother Bob says. But you know what? I don't know all of your hearts. Some of some, there might be somebody here today who's still in darkness. I don't know. Just because we're sitting in the church building, it doesn't mean that we're not walking in darkness, right? But God is asking you, please, I'm begging you, come out. Come out and be separate. Join us in the light. This morning, at about 7 o'clock, the sun was just coming over the trees where we live. It was shining onto the front porch. I went out there and I just stood in the sunlight. And I just felt the warmth and the light. And it felt so good, especially after we've had so much clouds the last week or so. And I just stood there for a few, for a few moments and I, I spoke to God aloud. I said, thank you, Lord, for this new day and for the sun that's warming my skin right now. In a spiritual sense, that's what God wants for his chosen generation, his, his royal priesthood. Who once, verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Brother Bob Eads, he received mercy this week. Praise the Lord. He sits here just as though nothing had happened to him this week in a bad car accident. I don't know about the car, but thankfully, huh? God was there. Amen. Amen. What about the car itself? Usable? Not too good. But, but Bob is here. Praise the Lord. Two-hander, right? Receive mercy. All of us have received mercy when we did not deserve it. And praise God for that. We are called to walk in the light, not in darkness. And we, I like this part about we are, we're, once we're not a people. I see different people here today from different backgrounds, different countries, different uh, uh, cultures growing up. But we're here together. And we happen to be called Seventh-day Adventists. Beautiful. And as a people, we have received and obtained mercy from God. But you know, we don't belong here, really. We are pilgrims and strangers. When uh, years ago, I went to church with my, my grandma Goldie, it's Danny's mother, and she used to love to sing a song in church that said, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I can, I can hear her singing that. And it's true. We are pilgrims and strangers here. And our home, hopefully, for each one of us, our heart, true home is in heaven. 
And verse 11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you give God the credit and the glory whenever something good happens to you? Or if someone uh, commends you? Sister Mary down here, she's been through a lot in the last, what was it, 30-something years. I praise the Lord for the day that she came down into the water and was baptized, made a permanent commitment to Jesus Christ. And she says, I'm not going back to that. Now, I don't know this, but Mary might have some family members or her some friends who might think that she's went off her rocker. I don't know that. I'm just, it would happen with any of us. When we make a firm commitment to Jesus, somebody's going to say, are you kidding? You're doing that now? Peter says, People may speak negatively against you now, but in the end, they will know that you stood on the side of right, on the side of the creator of the universe. But what is worship like today? Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. And verse 3, <clears throat> 3 and 4. Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Is that being done in our world today, in our churches today? Today there are people in churches <clears throat> all over the globe who listen to pastors teach and preach smooth words, fables <clears throat> that have no basis in biblical truth. And when you tell them what the Bible says about certain subjects, you hear things like, well, that's not the way I see it. Or, well, maybe you interpret it that way, but I don't interpret it that way. Or, yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. <clears throat> right? We see things like that. We hear things like that. Let me share with you <clears throat> one of my favorite paragraphs in the book, Great Controversy. It's on page 464, Great Controversy, page 464. Before <clears throat> the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, <clears throat> there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. Can you say amen? I'm looking forward to that, and I want to be a part of it. At that time, 
many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. Many, both ministers and people, will gladly accept these great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. Mm. But the enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. And before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. In those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, you get that? In those churches, which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be a manifest, there will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interests. Multitudes will exult that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. That sounds like a dreadful time. Hmm? Mm. Yeah, we're in it. Exactly. It's happening right now. <clears throat> Used to be that our television stations, we had three or four or five TV stations, and that was about it. And you could tune in on a Sunday morning and hear certain pastors. But now we have a thing called the Internet, and there are pastors galore. that have their own YouTube channel, preaching things that do not come from the Word of God and that are sometimes heretical to the true teachings of God, and people flock to it by the thousands or millions. So what will be the measuring rod? What will determine whether these so-called Christians are truly on God's side? I don't have it for the screen, but you know the passage that's found in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it's because there is how much light? No light in them. Here's another quote I want to share with you from the book Selected Messages, book one, page 121. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of our needs. To seek this should be our first work. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow upon his blessing upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents are to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us His blessing. So my friends, how are we to know if we have other gods in our lives. Whether we are consciously aware of it or not, how are we to know if we are worshiping by our actions or our thoughts or our motives something other than God? 
How do we know if our money or our television or our radio or our internet or our cell phone or our computer tablet, our car, our home, our movie stars, our TV personalities, our sports figures, our social media, how do we know if those things have the wrong position in our lives? How can we prove it? Here's how we prove it. Councils for the Church, page 185. Many profess to be on the Lord's side, but they are not. The weight of all their actions is on Satan's side. By what means then shall we determine whose side we are on? Who has your heart? Even if I stopped right there, that would be enough. Who has your heart? With whom are our thoughts? What do you think about throughout the day? Upon whom do we love to converse? Do you love to talk about Jesus or everything else in the world? Who has our warmest affections and our best energies? If we're on the Lord's side, our thoughts are with him and our sweetest thoughts are of him. We long to bear his image Breathe his spirit, do his will, and please him in all things. That's the test right there. Who has your heart? Does God have your heart? Or does this have your heart? Or this? Or other books and magazines and people and Oh, a host of other things. Who has your heart? There's so much more that we could study on this subject. But my question is simply this. Do you want to fulfill the conditions that God has, that, that fulfill God's promise of his blessings? I hope that you do. I hope that you will consider Every day, where do you worship? Do you spend more time with other things of the world? Or do you spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus? It's a question for each one of us. Only we can answer for ourselves. But God desires for us to sit at his feet and learn from him and be taught by him each and every day. We have all worshipped at other places besides your feet. At different times in our lives, different points of our journey. We thank you that you haven't given up on us. We thank you that you are calling us constantly and continually to come and worship at your feet. Father, Heavenly Father, I just pray that you will empower us. And embolden us, Lord, to make priorities in our lives and set the things of the world, even the necessary things, secondary to you. And may we truly be able to say, I'll worship only at the feet of Jesus. Be with us as we go to our homes today. Keep us close to you.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.